Um, this morning we're going to be looking at John the Baptist, which is what uh, Robert just mentioned, and primarily at uh, this passage that was just read, Matthew 3, uh, verses 1 through 12. We're going to do some uh, Bible gymnastics. We're going to jump around to a few different uh, locations in the Bible. Uh, so if you have the app open, the, the Bible Version app, um, it's going to have all the references there, and I'm pretty sure that they're going to be on the screen as well. So uh, the question is, is why John the Baptist? Because it is pretty conventional to be preaching on John the Baptist during uh, Advent. And so why is that? You know, I, I, was, I was talking to a, a, a lot of people about what it means for them to get ready for Christmas, different Christmas traditions that they have, memories they have of what it means to be getting ready for, for Christmas. And people talked about everything from watching their favorite movies to, uh, you know, lighting the candles uh, around their, their houses and, and doing all these special things to really kind of prepare them and get them into the spirit of Christmas. But really, John the Baptist is like the first Advent calendar. Right, John, b before the 12 days of Christmas, before uh, there were any other Christmas movies like Elf, before wreaths, before Christmas trees, uh, before even presents for one another, John the Baptist lays out what the first experience of Advent looked like uh, for Christians or, or for people as they prepare themselves for the Christ. And so he, he shows us what it truly means to have this idea of Christmas spirit, which we today, and myself included, I think we need a sobering reminder uh, as, as we have just five days left before Christmas. And so I, I want us to just take a few minutes and, and really put off whatever tasks or anxieties we have uh, that are still on our plates before Christmas. So whether that's sending out cards, whether that's finishing up some shopping, uh, wrapping presents, stringing up lights, maybe even figuring out a menu for Christmas or getting a tree up, whatever things you need to do or think that you need to do before Christmas, I want us to take some time to cast those off and, and consider with me this morning uh, what it looked like to prepare for the first Christmas before any of those things existed. And so as you're reading along and, and following along this morning, this is really a four-point sermon, right? We're going to look at who John the Baptist is, what his purpose was, how he accomplished that purpose, and how we ourselves are to prepare for Christmas. And so the first question is, who was John the Baptist? Well, one of the first things that we need to know is, is that John uh, is one of two miraculous births in the New Testament. And I think we can forget this. It's not a virgin birth like Jesus' will, uh, will be, but it really kind of mirrors the, the highly unlikely, borderline impossible conception we see with Abraham and Sarah, with their son Isaac back in Genesis 21. And so we hear about John's birth. Uh, it, one of the places to look is Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 17. So in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So we've got this godly couple. Uh, they love God. They're living lives filled with faith in obedience to God. Um, and, and they're old. They're barren. They're not able to have any children. And so the passage continues in verse 8. Now while he was serving, this is Zechariah, as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. 
But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you, and you will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so it's Zachariah's turn to serve in the temple, and he has this miraculous experience with an angel who tells him, you're going to have a son. As unlikely as that is, you're going to have a son, and his name is going to be John. So don't worry about figuring out names. We already have one for you. And, and he will be great. He's going to be godly, uh, and he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, even in the womb. And he's going to have a very specific purpose in life. And so Zechariah hears this, and he's understandably a little bit doubtful. And so what the angel does is he, he silences Zechariah, and he says, you're not going to speak until these things actually happen, which is kind of the equivalent of just like, shh, shh, just be quiet and watch, and, and you're going to see this all play out as it has been spoken. And so Zechariah goes home, and he somehow, because he can't talk, he like mimes it out to his wife, Elizabeth, what just happened in this temple. So he's got this epic vision of him and her, and they're going to have a baby, and you know he, he can't use his words, so he's like, Right? I can't imagine how he would do this, but he mimes it out to Elizabeth. And 40 weeks later uh, or so, uh, John is born. And so we kind of pick up in verse 64 of Luke chapter 1. And immediately his mouth was open, this is Zechariah, and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard him laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. John comes into the world in a very miraculous way, which, as you can see here um, in his birth, it really does set him up for incredible popularity. Uh, you have to remember that, that between the Old Testament and the New Testament is a period of, of relative silence from God for 400 years. And Israel uh, has their marching orders, uh, but, but they really haven't heard from God since the last verses that were recorded in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. And these are the last two verses in Malachi. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." The people of Israel are, are waiting and waiting in this like ultimate cliffhanger. And, and people like Zechariah and Sarah are remaining faithful and obedient to the hope that at, at this point has been passed down from generation to generation. And so these people are waiting. They're, they're weary, they're tired, they're, they're maybe growing doubtful and pessimistic until one day the time comes for God to premiere the final chapter of his story of redemption. And look at what the angel says about John. We just read this, but in verses 16 and 17, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It's almost verbatim what you read in the Old Testament cliffhanger, signifying that this is the time. And Israel, as you can imagine, is ecstatic 
with John's birth. I mean, it's what they've been waiting for, for all this time, for hundreds of years, in anticipation aimed toward the, the kind of the fulfillment of God's promises, which would be signaled by the birth of John. God's like, I'm going to fulfill my promises when you see a man coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. So that's in Malachi. And then here in Matthew, the angel is like, this is the man who's coming in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And so God picks up right where he left off without missing a beat. So look at verse 5 in Matthew 3 with me. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. So this is talking about John the Baptist. This would be like if everyone in the Pioneer Valley, everyone in western Massachusetts came out to the Connecticut River to see a man preaching in the wilderness, right? In a world without social media, without news coverage, without even cars or bicycles, this level of popularity and fame is, is quite staggering. And so John has this miraculous birth. He, he's, he's incredibly popular. And lastly, the thing that you need to know about John is he's a bit of a wild man. He's a little wild. So look at verse 4 in Matthew 3. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. This is not something that's lost in translation, right? So this image of a man dressed in camel's hair eating bugs and honeys from beehives, beehives, was just as peculiar and, and quite honestly, a little ridiculous uh, as it, uh, uh, then as it would be today. So it's not like this image makes any more sense in first century Palestine. In some ways, it might even be more acceptable today, right? Some sort of like trendy uh, millennial hipster movement where you're eating all natural bugs and organic honey. But th that's not what's happening. He, he's not being trendy. He legitimately is this wild man wearing camel's hair, eating bugs, and reaching into live beehives and taking out honeycombs and eating that. Like, that is who we're talking about right now. And so you can interpret this a, a few different ways. But one of the things that my wife pointed out as, as we were studying this passage together is that it, she just wondered, like, who else in Scripture has their clothes and their diet pointed out, right, as a part of the narrative? Is there a trend of preacher sneakers throughout the Old Testament that we're just not aware of, like we're not reading closely enough? And so as you read it, clothing is mentioned quite a bit, especially when you're, uh, you're seeing references to the temple priests and their robes and their ephods. And, and food also is really important throughout Scripture. But this does stand out. It, it, it is pretty unique, and, and it is mentioned here intentionally. And, and I think what we can conclude by reading this short little piece about John uh, is that John is different. John is cut from a different cloth. He, he's not the kind of guy who's standing in front of his wardrobe wondering what pairs best for the season. Right? He's not sitting down at a, at a farm-to-table restaurant deciding between like a filet and, and the duck confit. We, what we see here uh, is something that you see in, in a lot of highly focused individuals, like, like Steve Jobs. Right? Steve Jobs was, Jobs was notorious for having one outfit. He wore blue jeans, a black turtleneck, and New Balance shoes. And a part of this was because he didn't want to waste time in the morning or mental capacity and energy choosing what his outfit would be. So that's one thing he just put on, and he went and worked on other things. You even see this with the invention of meal replacements, replacements like Soylent. So if you've never heard of Soylent, it's something that's designed specifically by an engineer uh, who wanted to have a drink that would supply him with all the nutrients and everything that he would need so he can spend more time focusing on his work rather than cooking meals in the kitchen. 
And so John's simple wardrobe and, and his diet, it reveals something about John, that he has prioritized his life according to being solely focused on his purpose and his calling and really nothing else. And so that leads us to the next question. What, what is or what was his purpose and his calling? Well, I, I think it's two things as you read about John throughout the Gospels. Uh, it, it's to be a witness to the divinity and the purpose of Jesus, and it's to help prepare people for Jesus. So to be a witness and help prepare people for Jesus. Wouldn't it be nice to have your purpose in life distilled down into two points? And maybe that can be done, but I think that's a different sermon. But for John, his purpose uh, was simple, and his life actually looked like he took that purpose very, very seriously. Uh, when you look at, at what, what he's called to do, one of the great places is in John chapter 1, um, in verses 6 and 8. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The Gospel of John makes it clear that one of John's purposes is to be a witness to Jesus, the, the light of men, to commit himself and his words to the pointing toward and the identification of the man Jesus as the Christ, the promised Messiah that Israel had been waiting and longing for for hundreds of years. And, and, and he's wired to do this. Like when you think of the phrase, man, you were made to do this, John truly embodied that. So you jump to verse 39 in Luke chapter 1. It says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what has spoken to her from the Lord. John's purpose to point to and to witness to the divinity uh, and purpose of Jesus is so closely knit to, to who he is that even as a baby in the womb, he's already living out that calling. John was made to bear witness to Jesus as the Christ. And, and he's, he's also made to prepare people for the Christ. We already read this in verse 17 of Luke. Uh, Luke says, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so to kind of recap a little bit, we've established that John's birth is miraculous. Um, it, it, it marks the beginning of God's final act of redemption as it unfolds in the New Testament. Um, John is wildly popular with the entire region, uh, traveling out to see him. Um, he, he's this wild man. Uh, his priorities are set uh, on, on his purposes, which are to bear witness to Jesus and to prepare people for Jesus. And this is where we're going to camp out for the rest of this time. Uh, what does it look like uh, and what does it mean that John is preparing people for Jesus? And in turn, what does it look like for us today to be preparing ourselves for Jesus? And so we're going to look at this morning's text, uh, Matthew chapter 3, uh, verses 1 and 2. 
says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And jump to verse 5 with me. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Preparing people for Jesus uh, uh, means two things. It means leading people in repentance and baptizing people. Leading people in repentance and baptizing people. So let's start with repentance. What, what is repentance? You, you may hear this word a lot. Uh, you may even read about it a lot, especially as you're reading the Bible, because it, it, it's so central, not just to John's ministry, but it's actually central to the gospel as a whole. Uh, the, the, the word repent comes up a lot of times. It's actually the first word here uh, of John the Baptist's gospel. Um, the, repent was also the word, uh, first word of Jesus's gospel. So later on as you're reading in Matthew 4, verse 17, and even in Mark 1, 14 through 15, um, this is the, the word that Jesus uses as he starts preaching the gospel. Repent was also the word, uh, first word that's being used in the preaching ministry of the 12 disciples in Mark 6. Repent was the first word in the preaching instructions Jesus gave to his disciples after his resurrection. Repent was also the first call to action in the first Christian sermon by Peter in Acts 2, verse 38. And repent was the first word out of the mouth of the Apostle Paul through his ministry, as you read later on in Acts chapter 26. And all these references are in the Bible app, so if you want to check those out, those are there. But understanding this word theologically, uh, as it's used in Scripture, repentance means to wholly surrender oneself to God to wholly surrender oneself to God. It, it doesn't mean just stopping bad behavior, or kind of slapping yourself on the wrist when you do something bad, nor is it just any singular moment of conversion when a Christian becomes, or a non-Christian becomes a Christian. In its most basic form, repentance is having an awareness uh, that your life, your behavior, your heart, your mindset, your thoughts, whatever that may be, uh, that it is contrary to what God's is. As it's revealed uh, in Scripture through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and then turning away from what you see in your life and turning toward what you see in God. It's this two-point motion of turning away from something, but then turning toward God. And this is critical, because as much as repentance is about acknowledging and rejecting sinfulness, it's also about finding the true solution in God that we, in our sin, were trying to solve without him. And what's great is that I don't need to fabricate an example for this. We actually see one right here in the text. As John is preaching repentance, as people are, are responding to that preaching, we see the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, coming to check out John. And they actually don't get a very warm welcome. Look at verses 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. And these Jewish leaders, specifically the Pharisees, they were notorious for believing that keeping the Mosaic law would make them and keep them righteous before God. 
uh, but they often misinterpreted a lot of the law, and, and they also held a lot of um, informal traditions as being equal to the authority that you see in Scripture. And so they were often hypocrites. They, 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 they would look the part uh, and, and follow the, the outward appearance of the law while inwardly neglecting the spirit of the law. So their behavior looked good from the outside, but deep within their hearts, I mean, their hearts were rotten. Later in Matthew, Jesus would call them out himself, saying in, in, in Matthew 23, verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So when John sees them coming, he stops them, uh, and, 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 and he stops whatever he's doing, and, and he yells out, you brood of vipers, which would take some guts considering that these are the religious and cultural leaders of the community. The reason, though, is because this hypocrisy is so antithetical to the gospel, where the Pharisees preach that you just need to appear to have your life together. It doesn't really matter what's happening internally. What matters is that, is that other people see that everything looks okay, right? So that's antithetical to this idea where repentance is about an outward response and an inward response. Repentance for the Pharisees would have meant acknowledging the sinfulness in their hearts and, and, and surrendering their hearts, and not just their external actions, but their hearts completely over to God. Something that you'll, as you read throughout the Gospels, you'll see that the, the Pharisees are largely unwilling to do. And so repentance is wholly surrendering oneself to God. And what does that look like? practically, right? It, it, it can seem a little bit vague. Is it as easy as just kind of putting your hands up in this universal posture of surrendering and saying, God, I surrender to you? Well, partly, yes, I, I think so. Uh, one critical part of repentance is yielding yourself to God. And that's one of the reasons you can put your hands up as you worship and sing worship songs to God. This is not just uh, to exercise the uni universal posture of cheering Jesus on and saying, yes, I love you, God, and cheering him on, but it's also to put your body in a posture of surrender to God, to, to yield almost physically to God. And, and, and in that posture, you submit under the kingship of God. You, you cannot truly repent if you do not acknowledge God as your king. You can feel grieved by your sin. You can feel convicted by sin. You can feel even ashamed by sin. But, but to repent requires a surrendering to God. And so, yes, part of repent, repentance uh, is practically surrendering uh, to King Jesus. But, but what else? Because we see more. Look at verse 6. And they were baptized by him in the, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Confessing their sins. Confession, uh, articulating your sinfulness and wrongdoing using your words is a form of surrendering to God on a heart level. So not just a physical posturing, uh, but, but on a heart level. When you confess your sins, when you make your sins known, whether that's to God or to your brothers and sisters around you, uh, you're making known what is hidden inside. It's an acknowledgement to yourself and to others, and to God, that, that you are more sinful than you're willing to let on. 
And yes, you may have never killed anybody. Yes, you, you may have never had an affair, uh, uh, but you've harbored bitterness and resentment in your heart. You've had lustful thoughts and fantasies. And so repentance is turning away from, uh, from both of those. Uh, the outward actions, but then also the inward thoughts. It's acknowledging and turning away uh, from the sin that you commit externally uh, and also the internal root of that sin as it originates in your heart. And so we're seeing this picture of John preaching this message of repentance. And, and this is a theme that you're going to see over and over throughout the Gospels. And we see people who, who are excited and expectant for God to finish his story of, of redemption responding to John by acknowledging their sinfulness. They're confessing their sin. They're making known both the obvious and the secret sins. And as part of a physical response that marks that repentance that's happening in their hearts, they in turn get baptized. You see this in verse 6. They get baptized. Now this is all kind of happening all at once, this process of repentance and confession and then baptism. And one of the greatest joys of being a member of Mercy House, being a member of this church, uh, each year is getting to see people take the plunge under the water in baptism as a declaration of what's been happening in their lives, the miraculous conversion of their hearts, the repentance, the confession, and then completing in this act of baptism. And, and that's what baptism means. The, the word itself, it, it means to immerse or to overwhelm. And the important symbolism in baptism uh, is that it is a complete and total submersion uh, of the person being baptized. We, we don't do a sprinkling. Uh, it, it is a fitting act that represents the total surrender to God, both body, mind, and spirit. Everything you are is dunked under the water. R Robert makes it a point each time he baptizes someone here to make sure that every single square inch, every strand of hair is fully submerged under that water. That person is fully immersed, fully overwhelmed by the water. And Robert does this and John does this because this is an outward expression of what's happening on an internal level, an internal transformation. It's a declaration to the world that, that I surrender, not just a piece of me, but all of me. Every single inch, every strand of hair from, from my toes all the way to the top of my head, I yield and I surrender to God. It's truly just a beautiful, epic moment every single time we get to see a baptism at Mercy House. Now, it's important as we're talking about baptism to understand John didn't invent baptism, right? This wasn't something new that John just pulled out of his back pocket. Baptism existed uh, as a means for Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish people, to convert to Judaism. It was a ceremony of cleansing that would be a whole body uh, bath that, that, that people would take. And what is so scandalous about what is happening is that John's preaching of repentance and offering of baptism, it wasn't directed toward the Gentiles. It was for the people already within the covenant community of Israel. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others who put their faith in keeping the law would have been offended to think that they, the righteous, would need to be cleansed like a Gentile. By, by, this, uh, by this wild, camel-hair-wearing, bug-eating, crazy man. Uh, but this is exactly what John calls them out for. Look at verse 9 in Matthew 3. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
What John is saying is, don't think that just because you're Jewish that God doesn't want your heart along with your actions. That you have some sort of special privilege because you're a part of, of this covenant community. Everyone, including Jews, including leaders of the Jews, needs to repent and prepare themselves to receive Jesus for who he is and what he's about to do. And so you can't have hope and pride in yourself or, or your traditions or, or your family lineage or your socioeconomic status or your role or your self-discipline or your accolades. You can't rest in any of these if you are to receive Christ. And so what we see in these verses is the very first advent. This season of, of ex, uh, expectant waiting for the promised hope of a Messiah to rescue God's people from the eternal curse of sin and death. And for the unfolding of the conclusion to the epic story that God had been writing for thousands of years. But instead of chocolate calendars uh, and, and warm and cozy fires and Christmas movies, the, the, the people are, are waiting for the Messiah in the woods. They, they're going outside. They're reflecting on their brokenness. They're repenting of their sin. They're, they're confessing their sin. And they're ceremonially washing their bodies to reflect that repentance. Now, I, I don't want to seem like a Scroogey Grinch, right? There's nothing inherently sinful or wrong to putting a tree in your house or waiting in your car for three hours to see the lights down at Forest Park. But there are a few things, and, 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 and I'd love to share them with you, a few things that I want to encourage us as a church community to be prioritizing in these final days uh, as we lead up to Christmas. The first is to honestly reflect on 2020. And the second is to turn our eyes toward Jesus. So reflect on 2020 and turn our eyes on Jesus. When I was in college, I worked at a Boy Scout camp for a summer. Um, I, I, I applied as a lifeguard because the prerequisite was that you needed to know how to swim. I knew how to swim. I learned pretty fast that there's a pretty, pretty big difference between knowing how to swim and how to you know, actually save somebody's life who's drowning in the water. Um, and, and so the summer starts, uh, and I'm going through all the emotions of getting my lifeguard certification. I do the CPR, do the mile swim, uh, learn how to tread water for an hour. Um, and one of the, the final tests, and this is actually a frequent exercise, is a lost bather drill, or an LBD. Uh, and, and what would happen is you would hear an alarm uh, that, would, that would sound, and no matter where you were on the campground, you would be able to hear this, and you'd have to sprint down to the waterfront, no matter what you were doing. And what you do is you line up on shore uh, about an arm's length apart, and you would essentially scan the bottom of the lake methodically, right? And so this meant uh, being in the line, and, and you would swim straight down uh, to, to, to the, the bed of the lake, and you would swim five strokes out, uh, and then straight back up. And, and so you would repeat this process until the entire area around the floating docks was combed. And during these drills, they would put a 150-pound weighted dummy somewhere in the water, and you would have to find it in the weeds, and you would need to bring it back up to the surface and bring it back to land. And so I remember uh, the day of our test. It was super cold, and it was super windy. Um, and, and the alarm went off, and I had to sprint about like a mile from my bunk all the way to the waterfront. So I'm full of adrenaline. I'm already gassed from from sprinting, and I remember getting into the frigid water and, and just struggling to like keep up with the other lifeguards who are doing this drill. 
So it's 15 to 20 feet swimming straight down, and then you're wading through muck. Uh, you can barely see for five strokes, and you're coming straight back up. And, and by the second dive down, I'm honestly struggling to, to just keep my composure, uh, let alone try to find something in those murky weeds. And, and between the adrenaline, uh, between the cold, uh, I, I just started panicking. And I had to break for the surface early before I did my five strokes just to get a breath so I wouldn't pass out in the water. And I'm holding on to everything I have to make it to the surface. And as soon as I break the surface and actually take in a breath, because of the wind and how choppy the water was, I get a face full of water as soon as I take a breath of air. And in this moment, right, I'm like in full-blown panic mode. And I'm thinking, I'm going to die in a lifeguard test drowning like that's very ironic and one of the testers right they're watching us from the docks he saw me he's like more you okay and I did what any 20 year old boy who's you know borderline drowning would do I gave him a thumbs up and I said I'm okay I'm all right and I push on through the rest of the exercise and this went on for another 20 dives just struggling under the water, struggling above the water, praying that, that someone else would find the dummy and for this drill to just be over because I was done with it. Needless to say, that was my last summer as a lifeguard. I share this story because it's what I've thought of as I tried to reflect on how 2020 felt. Um, this experience of, of, of being in an incredibly uncomfortable situation being forced to do something incredibly difficult and then rising and trying to get a breath of air just for a moment of reprieve and getting hit in the face with a wave and experiencing that over and over and over, feeling like I was drowning. And, and for a lot of us, I think that this is what 2020 has felt like. Some of us losing jobs, others of us losing out on, on a senior year experience, others of us being isolated from friends and family, struggling with the actual sickness that is COVID, losing family members to COVID, facing financial hardships because of COVID, struggling with mental health and all of the isolation, hearing heavy stories and having heavy conversations surrounding uh, racism in our country, the entire presidential election season, and just when we think we're in this home stretch, we're dealing with one of the largest spikes uh, in the cases we've seen all year. I mean, just the other day, I, I heard from a friend that she had tested positive for COVID and isn't able to go home to spend uh, Christmas with her family. She's by herself in her apartment here in Amherst. Mercy House, as we uh, take a time to reflect on this year, I think it's important to, to take the time to grieve some of the hardships and the trials that we've experienced. But at the same time, being honest with ourselves uh, with this question, how have we personally and spiritually navigated this season? Did we grow bitter and resentful in it? Did we become lukewarm and passive? Did we turn inward, focusing on self-care and neglecting the needs of others? Or did we neglect our own needs and spiral downward into despair? Did we cope with all of this in unhealthy, sinful ways? To prepare for Christmas means to prepare our hearts for Christ. And for Israel, this was a time to, to quote-unquote, get right with God, meaning to, to remove anything in our lives that, that would prevent uh, us from being able to engage with God. And that's what John offered in the wilderness to all that came to him. 
a chance not just to acknowledge and wallow in their brokenness and sinfulness, but to have the ability to, uh, to, to repent from it, um, to confess those sins and, and have them no longer tied and associated with them as they move forward uh, and, and toward the coming of Christ. And so I want to encourage us to take time to reflect on 2020 and our relationship with God, to make an honest assessment of where our actions and our hearts are in relation to God. And I want to encourage us to repent if needed, to acknowledge and turn away from sin, but also look toward Christ. And Christmas represents the, the greatest turning of the tide, the birth of the, the, a king that would bring ultimate rescue to the broken world. There are some of you who are listening this morning who have never repented, never wholly surrendered to God in both action and in heart. And my hope and my encouragement to you this morning is that you would do that. Uh, not just having an awareness of your sinfulness and your futility, but, but turning for the first time to the hope that is in Jesus Christ. To completely and fully surrender to Emmanuel, the God with us. And so you can learn more about what this looks like uh, by traveling to our website, mercyhouse365.org respond. We'd love for the chance to reach out to you, to, to answer any questions you may have. Um, and that page itself is a great resource for learning what it means to surrender uh, to God. But if you're ready to make that decision and you want to make that confession and you want to get baptized to symbolize what's, and reflect what's happening in your heart, then we'd love to walk you through that process. Finally, as we um, reflect and repent, I want to encourage us to look to Jesus. Uh, John is not going to stay in the wilderness forever, um, and soon he's going to see Jesus on the road, and he's going to shout out in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The solution to 2020, a horrible 2020, is not optimism for a better 2021. One of the first sermons in our Ecclesiastes series was on the vanity and the hevel of putting your hope in the future. The, the solution for a horrible 2020 is not making the best of what we have now and, and try to scrape together a Christmas experience to make us feel better and, and just escape the reality of this year. Our hope can't be in having enough just Christmas cheer or presents under the tree or just cozying up by the fire and trying to get those hallmark Christian feels. Our, our, our one true hope, our one great joy is in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world.